X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Thursday, June 11th. If 2020 is a year that causes nightmares, what will the 20s be? Perhaps a period of transformative change like the progressive era 100 years ago? Or perhaps a bit like the 1960s? Today, back in the day, June 11th, 1962, Students for a Democratic Society issued the Port Huron Statement. Starting with this, we are people of this generation, bred in at least modest comfort, housed now in universities, looking uncomfortably to the world we inherit. They went on to call for a new left in America. The document went on to address bigotry and racial discrimination, unfairness in the economy, the military-industrial complex, McCarthyism, nuclear disarmament, and disillusionment with the American ideal, and a call for students and universities to organize. A year later, today, back in the day, June 11th, 1963, the day the Civil Rights Museum calls the height of the Civil Rights Movement. On this day in 1963, Dixiecrat Governor of Alabama George Wallace stood at the door of Foster Auditorium at the University of Alabama to block two black students, Vivian Malone and James Hood, from attending that school. John F. Kennedy's Defense Secretary, Robert McNamara, ordered the Alabama National Guard to be placed under the command of the federal government, but they did not tear gas those protesting for black lives. Instead, the Assistant U.S. Attorney General of the United States approached George Wallace and cited the U.S. District Court order and required the students to be allowed to register. George Wallace stepped aside at 3.40 that afternoon after the Alabama National Guard commander told Wallace the Guard would enforce the president's order. And just a few hours later, that same day, June 11, 1963, today back in the day, John F. Kennedy addressed the nation from the Oval Office and proposed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which would revolutionize American society, guaranteeing equal access to public facilities, ending segregation in public schools, and guaranteeing federal protection for voting rights. He was killed less than six months later. As we see protests, as we see marches nearly every day, we have to keep in mind this is a fight that has been going on since before the Civil War. And for us to have any claim to morality, any claim to democracy, the good guys have to win. And to be clear, not mostly guys. Today on The Local, your quick six headlines. Our discussion with Kaya Sand of Street Roots. And finally, Kyosha Owens from the Equitable Giving Circle and Empress Rules with organizational approaches to racial equity and an inspirational charge for why it matters. First up, it is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. The big question, will Multnomah County enter Phase 1 on Friday? In a meeting on Wednesday, county commissioners and health officials reevaluated progress towards entering the first phase of reopening. According to the county chair, Deborah Cafori, Multnomah County is moving ahead with its plan to begin a gradual reopening. The only thing left is to wait for approval from Governor Kate Brown. Wednesday's reevaluation was planned before the county submitted its application to enter phase one. The county's health officer said the recent uptick in cases is not surprising. She said the rise in numbers is due to the opening of other nearby counties and the overall increase in testing. The county has hired 65 of 122 required contact tracers. Another 35 potential tracers have been identified. If the county enters phase one on Friday as planned, the following restrictions will be eased. With respect to restaurants and bars for sit-down service, requirements including social distancing, no groups larger than 10, workers wearing masks, and closing by 10 p.m. Barbers, salons, and massage businesses requiring social distancing, only doing it by appointment, and having available PPE and making sure there's a customer list for contact tracing. Gyms and fitness centers, again, social distancing, no more than 25 people there and sanitation required. And for in-person gatherings, up to 25 people not traveling together. The county will have to wait at least three weeks, 21 days, before being eligible to move into phase two. 
And Multnomah is the only county remaining in Oregon that has not entered Phase 1. 29 of 36 Oregon counties have now entered Phase 2. It's time for your daily pandemic breakdown. As of Wednesday, there have been 5,060 diagnosed cases of COVID-19 in Oregon, 72 new cases on Wednesday. No new deaths, 169 remains the total number of recorded and confirmed COVID-19 deaths in Oregon. The Coalition of the Communities of Color have criticized the OHSU's COVID study as potentially having racial bias. The study was put together in about three weeks with the hope of testing 100,000 Oregonians and following them for a year. Critics say that the panel of all-white researchers could have done more to reach out to Oregon communities of color, and they warn the data could be skewed. There is no denying COVID-19 has had a more devastating effect on black and brown communities. OHSU has responded by saying it is working with organizations to broaden the study and is holding listening sessions in an attempt to equalize the data. Meanwhile, prison outbreaks have slowed in Oregon. North Bend Correctional Facility announced its outbreak is over, citing no new cases for over 28 days. Other prisons around the state have reported a slowing of infections, the largest being the Oregon State Penitentiary, where only one new case has been recorded in the last few days. Previously, the prison has had as many as 20 cases a day. Overall, between staff and inmates, the number of cases related to OSP, the Oregon State Prison System, is 168, with 93 having recovered. That's more than half. Schools in for summer? Many Oregon schools will resume classes over the summer. Some will be in person. A survey of districts that educate more than 70% of the state students found that most will offer weeks of summer learning. The target is students in big need of a boost, most commonly migrant students, those with significant special education needs, incoming kindergartners with no preschool experience, and soon-to-be freshmen who faltered in middle school. Many districts plan to do remote learning to keep social distancing going, but several have announced plans to teach face-to-face. -face. Not every kid and not every family has a laptop or a Zoom program. Under guidelines set by the Oregon Department of Education, classes will be limited to 10 students. Activities such as common recess and cafeteria meals are forbidden. No recess, no cafeteria for you. District officials note the transportation will be extra tricky as students from different households must be spaced at least three feet apart. Hillsborough's assistant superintendent of academic services said, and here's the quote, we are determined to do everything we can so that a couple hundred kids who need us the most can come to school. So far, Hillsborough looks to be the only school district in the metro area committed to in-person learning, but other districts, including Baker City and Salem-Kaiser, are going to give it a try. Portland Public School plans to offer summer learning to 3,500 to 4,000 students, just as in a normal summer, but almost all students will be limited to virtual learning. Hopefully that'll be real learning in a virtual environment, but it remains to be seen. Mr. Wheeler, tear down this wall. That's not me saying it. It is Pamplin Media writing this story. A plywood barrier that had been erected around City Hall in the Portland building in downtown Portland is coming down. City officials initially put up the wall to keep the buildings from being targeted for graffiti and artwork related to the protests. The city cited the expense of cleaning the limestone and the importance of dedicating resources elsewhere. But just a day after the mayor announced the wall, Tom Reinhardt, the chief administrative officer for the city, announced the wall is coming down. And here's Reinhardt's quote. The plywood was intended to protect iconic public buildings and minimize expenses, but we need to put our relationship with the community first. The city of Portland is open for civic engagement, especially now. We need to hear our community's demands for racial justice, even when those demands take the form of spray paint. And the city budget vote has been delayed due to the passing of Ted Wheeler's mother. Mayor Wheeler is absent from Portland on Wednesday and therefore unable to vote on the new proposed budget. The vote was delayed. 
A hearing scheduled for Wednesday had been eagerly anticipated by many Portlanders and perhaps by many listeners to the local who planned to use the time to push the council to move funding from the police budget and redirect it to the community. More than 700 people signed up to testify. The testimony went ahead as planned. And let us think, some of this is personal, but it's still news-relevant as the mayor of our city. This has been a tough year for the mayor. An announced divorce, the passing away of his mother, and all of that in the midst of a global pandemic and now protests around another pandemic. There are so many people having a tough time in 2020. Let's keep that in mind for all of us. Two separate initiatives are underway to provide free preschool to Multnomah County children. On Saturday, a group called Universal Preschool Now held a kickoff party to launch a ballot initiative for the November election. Their plan would provide free preschool to all children in Multnomah County. It's similar to the one that County Commissioner Jessica Vega-Peterson has been working on. The Universal Preschool Now group needs to gather at least 23,000 valid signatures. The Multnomah County Board of Commissioners would just need to vote to put the Preschool for All program on the November ballot. That's the other initiative. Neither group would reinvent the preschool wheel, would work with existing child care providers and preschools to expand the number of slots available. The Universal Group said their plan would tax the highest earners in the county to pay for the initiative. The state does have a program to give free preschool to underprivileged kids, but advocates say that program doesn't go far enough because the slots are only available to about 15% of those in need of child care. As of now, there is no word of combining the effort, so there still may be a chance to see two free preschool ballot measures in the November election. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Here's Emily Gilliland with what's next. Thanks, Jefferson. Kaya Sand joined Street Roots as the executive director in December 2017. A lot has happened over that time frame. The number of people experiencing homelessness has increased more than 20% between 2017 and the last point in time count in 2019. Then 2020 arrives with a global pandemic. Kaya joins Jefferson Smith to discuss how Street Roots has evolved, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. Centered on the community and their vendors, Street Roots always has news to share. If you've ever walked around the streets of Portland, Oregon, you have heard of Street Roots newspaper. If you haven't, it's a newspaper with a good cause. It aims to create income opportunity for those experiencing homelessness and allow their voices to be heard in print. Kaya Sand is the executive director of Street Roots, and she is with us right now on the telephone. Kaya, good morning. Good morning. How is Street Roots coping? First of all, first of all, first of all, how are you doing? Oh, thank you. Um, well, I think I'm very much how I'm doing is how Street Roots is doing and the, the fact that I'm just entirely focused on it. Um, and, you know, in a lot of ways, Street Roots is well-suited for dealing with crises because for 20 years we've been working with people on the streets who show creativity and resilience in really difficult situations. So those are really values that drive us. So we've, I mean, I since, let's see, March 20th, well, March 13th was the last issue that we printed. And so since then, we've basically reinvented, transformed, um, because we needed to figure out how to keep getting income to people, even though they no longer had a paper to sell. So we've had to be very... Yeah, how do you do that? Have them deliver pixels over the internet? How does that work? 
I know. And it's just for people who don't understand, I mean, I think yeah. it's pretty obvious, but you, you print the paper, you distribute it to your constituency, and then they go out and sell the newspapers. I think I think it's still a buck of newspaper. And they're not. if you're not supposed to be, if people aren't supposed to be out, uh, out on the street, if people aren't supposed to be walking to work and driving around, then there isn't that much of a constituency to go buy the newspapers from. And if they did, they'd be putting themselves maybe or, or maybe the, the vendor at risk. Uh, feel free to correct me if I got into that wrong. But, yeah, how did you, how are you dealing with it? No, that's really well put. I think we were just driven by public health. And how we, um, how we responded is actually we just took on this idea that we're all public health workers now. And so we basically bifurcated, became almost like two organizations. So it's been a pretty heavy lift because we've been committed to our newspaper. So we turned it entirely digital. We've been doing really, really good reporting. I'm very proud of our journalists. And then we just started raising money as fast as we could to get the money directly out to unhoused people. Um, so we started giving out assistance uh, to people, 283 people, based on their sales. And then we also started an action team. So um, vendors just started doing new work, and most of it was public health related, going out and doing outreach bringing first they worked with the county um, to get the language right for going out to camps to even talk about COVID-19 and getting hand sanitizer out getting supplies out so we have outreach people going out we pay them stipends people are running their office because we need to get mail to people and then I think this is one of the feats that I'm just most stunned by is one of our reporters did a story on the stimulus payments and met the director of the low-income tax clinic at Lewis and Clark, Sarah Laura. And through that, we got to know her and several of our vendors, all who sleep on the streets, started running computers where they Zoom her in and they sign up people, whether they're our vendors or not, just people who are homeless, to get their stimulus money. And I mean, it was uh, two weeks ago, I think, that we hit 100, no, a week and a half ago, we hit 100 people, which is, what, $150,000 that we got into the pockets of people who are homeless. So those checks come to Street Route, so we have to be operating to do that. I mean, we're just kind of... You've been, you've transformed, you've basically had to transform, and this is not, you're not alone in having had to do this. No, no. But you've had to transform the entire operation and thrust of your organization. That's right. Um, but, but of course, that's just in this incredibly collective way, you know, where I think one of the things that's been so powerful is just the way that each of us has been opened up to the talents of people on the streets through this process. I mean, we had one woman who, before she became homeless, she was a flagger on a highway. So she was really good at being basically what we called our social distance coordinator, where she would go out on the streets of the old town. She would tape the sidewalk to help people stand at six feet increments. You know, she'd coach people to be wearing their masks. We found other people are really nurturing by nature. So they were really good at, you know, like getting coffee out to people. So there's something about all of this that feels so incredibly transformative. Like, we're not going to be the same organization. I mean, we're building our framework now, you know, to figure out how to safely go back to print, get people back out selling. But we're not going to be the same organization, and we're going to carry some of who we've become forward. 
I want to go back to the constituency that you serve, the community, the vendors that you work with. Help people understand how COVID-19 is impacting our community that's experiencing homelessness differently than everybody else. Some of it, of course, is about information you shared. Some of it's going to be obvious, but help people understand that a little bit. Oh, yeah. Thank you for asking. I mean, I think there's several things to keep in mind. One of them is that people... Um, you know, they when there's camping outside, it's just really hard to access hygiene, and it's just a very basic issue. Um, and and you know, as things shut down, it got harder. I mean, less bathrooms, you know, less abilities to wash people's hands and their and hands with soap. I think also though, just the fact that people have underlying medical conditions. I mean, I you know, I hear people talk about having COPD. It's like um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease like that's a really common thing for people to say they have on the streets so they're 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 you know a high-risk group with that um there's a study margot kushel who's a like a, a physician out of san francisco she did a study showing that people on the streets basically are more than two decades older medically so in other words mm. they present as needing geriatric medicine maybe in their mid-40s. And I think that's a really important thing to think about with COVID-19, that when we talk about someone being, you know, high risk, say, at 70, well, then they'd be in their mid-40s on the streets and they're high risk. So there's that. There's also, as people jostle to reopen, um, you know, there's, like in Old Town, there's an increased police presence. So this is before the demonstrations. We had to call, bring in the ACLU Oregon to do a know your rights training with our vendors because you know our vendors are being asked for their id when they're out on the sidewalk and we're really always aware of if they're getting profiled but so but beyond that it's also just really an anxiety ridden condition to have this kind of muddied presence of the police not really knowing how they're going to use their power at a given time and then actually with the, the way the police are responding to the demonstrations where they're you know unleashing this gas um, of course, people on the streets are getting hit by that. And then in COVID-19, when our lungs are what we have to protect in our community, um, you know, that's something that's just hitting people's lungs. How do you meet and vet and train your vendors? Oh, um, we are low barrier. So anyone can walk through the door, go through orientation and start selling the paper. They buy it for a quarter, sell it for a dollar. And the reason we have that kind of model is there are barriers everywhere to employment. And you know, some of us have the privilege of getting to build through our privilege these kind of glistening resumes. And poverty co- compounds poverty, uh, the records that people accumulate um, because of the, you know, racism and um, inequalities of our society interfere with people's ability to get a job. So we think this has got to be an area where you can you can actually be want to earn an income, earn an income. And then through that, we have standards. People could lose their ability to sell the paper. And we really try to build a community and like build everything up. So while you do it, you, you know, you gain skills, um, and hopefully if you want to do move on to other things, you're able to do that. Well, I want to say thank you so much, Kaya Sand from Street Roots. I got to ask, I've been wanting to figure out a way to partner with you all on a podcast, either on the local so we can work together on a daily news podcast or something else. I would still love to figure that out if you're game. 
Oh, yeah. And, you know, I should mention we, I mean, through the digital response, we do have a podcast now. Devon Pounds. I know. Launched it. And, yeah, he's our vendor program manager, but he does radio and podcasts, too. And then he did a town hall. We did a town hall on, um, done a couple campaigns. And one of them was to work to get those those uh, camp villages in place. And then now we're really working to get motels and hotels, more of them opened up. And so he just did a town hall on that, too. So, yes, let's talk. That'd be awesome. I just want to say you're, you're, a, you're a Portland treasure. We are so grateful to your work, and thanks so much for spending some time here. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Right. Be well, Kai. Bye. Want to activate your workplace towards racial equity? Looking for ways to get involved? Kiyoshi Owens, founder of Empress Rules, has answers and inspiration for you. Here's Kiyoshi. Good morning, Kiyoshi. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. You sound like you are wide awake and ready to go this morning. I am totally not. (laughs) I get you. It's early. It's really early. We appreciate you jumping on the line with us this morning. Yeah, parenting most definitely has taught you to fake it till you make it. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us about your work with Empress Rules Consulting. Yeah, so I started um, Empress Rules in 2017 out of a need for liberation and freedom. Um, I am a black woman who is very brilliant, innovative, and I just, I'm a problem solver, and I just wanted to help. And I kept, you know, I started losing my mind, uh, being brilliant, innovative, having all these solutions, answers, and people would take my, my answers. They would not want to pay me for them. Mm. I wouldn't get promoted. As people would get promoted with less qualifications, lower outcome, uh, they look different than me, if that makes sense, lighter skin tone, and I couldn't take it, mm. and so I came home, and I told my husband, I said, honey, I'd rather, I would rather die than to work for somebody else again, and so I wanted to change um, organizational uh, work environment so that they could be welcoming and experience exponential growth through engaging in multiple perspectives. I want people like me and people from everywhere, you know, who wants to come in and work for these organizations and contribute and share their thoughts and ideas to feel welcome. I want their cultures to feel welcome. I want them to be able to enter into the organization as their whole self. And not just in organizations, but in our world. Mm. And so that's, you know, um, how Empress Rules was started. Uh, My daughter's name is Empress, and she rules my heart. And the thought of her as a young black woman having to go through what I went through is unbearable. So I'm doing my best. She's six. So we have 12 years to get it right. So. That's incredible. That's, how we That's incredible. So tell us about the sort of work that you're doing with organizations. Do you have a pathway that you take each organization or company through? Does it depend on what the, the company or organization needs? Yeah, it's a yes and, uh, okay. so we say in facilitation networks. Um so yes, we, I do have a specific algorithm that I do take organizations through, and it's also organization specific. Every organization is not the same. Mm-hmm. And even though whiteness is a big thing, in a lot of organizations we do live in the whitest city in the United States, so it's just that way of thinking, that kind of dominant culture way of thinking, um, just working to, de- to decenter that. And the goal is to not to eradicate whiteness, right? Um, the dominant culture, but just to decenter it, to bring in space for, or to create space for multiple perspectives and different ways to do things. And we do it through just consciousness raising techniques. Um, mm-hmm. We get to know each other below the surface, so we connect, and we, we realize that we're more alike than we are different. 
um, race is a social construct, so it shouldn't be determinant of how much money we make or our school system or anything. That's racism. So. I answer your question? It does, yeah. And there are a lot of organizations and companies right now who are making statements, some more powerful than others. What are some of the key um, other actions that you would want to be seeing from an organization or company right now, in addition to those statements of support and solidarity? I think that's what you, I think you nailed it on the head when you said actions. That's a key word, it's actions. Um, if you know me, you know I don't care about words. Um, I want to see uh, the proof is in the pudding, as my mama would say. So I don't want to just see your equity statement. I want to see what you're doing. Um, some of the first questions I ask is how many black women are on your executive leadership, your board, and on the ground? And I can almost predict in about 90% of the cases that it's pretty homogenous, you know, except for when you get to the people who are outwardly facing. Because organizations want to look like we are diverse, but when it comes to economic promotion and, and growth, it just gets wider as you get to the top, especially some of these boards of these major corporations. So I want to see things change. I want organizations to have intentional metrics around the cultures that they're inviting into their organizations. Um, the reason why we use the term BIPOC, which stands for Black Indigenous People of Color, is to acknowledge anti-Blackness, Indigenous invisibility, and people of color and how we show up. And then a lot of organizations are anti-Blackness. You may have people of color there, when I ask how many black women are there, nil, mm. one or two out of 110 or 15. Mm. So I want to see real change. I want to see these organizations out uh, investing in communities, organizations who have participated in the slave trade or got any type of inherent benefit from that or any of the type of isms that have been uh, perpetuated in the United States to voluntarily invest in our communities. Nobody, your government shouldn't have to tell you what to do to do the right thing to give back when you know you're supposed to give and I'm talking about giving directly and that's kind of what the equitable giving circle is kind of about mm, well tell us about that what's the equitable <laughs> giving circle well let me just go ahead and back up a little bit because yeah. I know some people are afraid of conflict and out of conflict beautiful things can be born if you're not experiencing conflict that means you probably have Greek group thinking everybody around you is thinking the same and we don't want that right right so there's this group I'm a part of, of women entrepreneurs, and it's mostly white women. It's about 7,000 women in there. And there was this racial blow-up where there were these white women who were uh, silencing black women, and there's this amazing woman named Cole Reed who was like, we're not going to go for this, and she owns a uh, greenhouse gallery on MLK. And she's like, we're not going for this. We need to change, you know, and it's time to change. And so there were some women who were like, you know, you're right, we do. And so they had an initial... Uh, facilitation it was okay some dialogue got started and then they were able I did a facilitation for them and these there's a core group of women who had just really had a major impact on them and there's this other woman named um, AJ McCurry she's absolutely she's a black woman she's an active she's all these amazing things and a super mama she had the idea of like you know what we need this, this is a pandemic right now we need to feed these families like we need to start giving with no strings attached and so she was able to connect with um, some other black women and then some of these white women who were, like, uh, leading charge in their white spaces for, you know, uh, change. And we were all able to come together and create this equitable giving circle. And we started by purchasing food CSAs, uh, subscriptions from BIPOC farmers, and gifting them to um, black and brown uh, BIPOC communities directly. And so now what we're doing is we're doing that, and our next step is we're going to be working on the housing strategy. Because we know that uh, if we want to create foundational wealth, owning home ownership 
that's one of the strongest ways that you can do it. And right now, black and brown folks are being excluded from those opportunities, from having these obstacles and barriers such as down payment assistance, uh, taxes, debts. You know, black folks are the last ones hired, the first ones fired. So we want to just get this money and get it back to them. Because our ancestors already paid the price. My ancestors mm-hmm. already paid the price. You know, 400 years, we've already paid with interest. Mm-hmm. So there shouldn't be any type of question about where people are getting their money from and how they got it. If they don't understand it, then they need to educate themselves and give it back. You know, we're not asking for all of it, but you need to, dire- you need to directly invest into our youth, into our, our, uh, our college students, into our adults who need support, who want to, to do better for themselves, and they want to be homeowners. And so we're going to be working on creating a strategy where we're, um, you know, get some uh, partners who are willing to fund match with us, get directly to these people at the end of the homeownership pipeline, pay a couple months of their rent, purchase uh, gift certificates from black and brown owned um, organizations to, you know, furnish their homes and just say, hey, you know, welcome to, to change. And so that's some of the things that we want to do, but that's just the beginning. Wow. How can folks best support the Equitable Giving Circle? Uh, most definitely, one thing they could do is raise their own consciousness around race and racism and their role in it. That's number one. Mm-hmm. And secondly, you could tune in to or log on to um, equitablegivingcircle.org. That's once again, equitablegivingcircle.org. And you can become a member, make a donation, whatever it is that you like, however you want to participate. You know, we, we most definitely will have a place for you. And then also, if you want to visit my website at infrastructurals.net, I have some culture change tools on there. If you're an organization who wants to make change, I most definitely would love to help you. Hmm. However, if you work with me, we're going to get the work done and you will change. So, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love that. Just putting it out mm-hmm. there. you got to step yeah. up. Kiyoshi, how can yeah. folks best support your equity-giving circle and infrastructurals? Can you give us those uh, uh, websites once more? Absolutely. Visit the equitablegivingcircle.org and just look at what we're doing, you know, um, log in, sign up, donate, give, send us an email, ask what you can do. If you're an organization that's ready for change, you can visit me at www.empressrules.net. That's Empress Rules. She rules my heart. .net. And I will help you. And I'm doing this as a collaborative. It's not just Empress Rules. I don't work by myself. I serve the community. I'm accountable to the community. And so I work with a beautiful, diverse collaborative of uh, DEI uh, master facilitators. And we will help you. We will help you. Just be ready for change. We can do this. We're going to end racism in my lifetime, in your lifetime, before my daughter and, and our children inherit the earth. It is our responsibility. I love it. I love it. I'm with yeah. you, Kiyoshi. We're with you. Thank you so yes. much. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yes, thank you so much. And I just want to say one last thing. Just make sure you have representation up and down. And for y'all too. Have representation up and down your organization from the very top to the very bottom. Collectivism is how we experience exponential growth. So let's do it together. Let's be diverse. Let's be intentional. Have those metrics out there. And if you need me, give me a call. <laughs> thank you so much, Kiyoshi. Yes, thank you. And you have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you. Thanks to Kaya. Thanks to Kiyoshi for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. As always, if you have story ideas or organizations who need shouts out, send us an email at thelocal at xray.fm. We're sticking together while we are apart. It's a good day to rate and review and share the podcast. Listener numbers are going up a little bit, and that's because of you. So thank you, and thank you, Democracy. 
Let's talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.